Previously on 80s High. If you've been following along carefully, if you're a fan of this, you know that I just named about half the tracks off the 1987 album by Paul Simon, Graceland. Oh, okay. Interesting. Largely regarded as one of the most successful albums of all time. Wow. But also one of the most deeply controversial albums of all time. Ben? Will you be my bodyguard? I will be your long lost pal. You can call me That's right, listeners. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that we go back to the roots, the rhythm, the rock of the 80s. On your best 80s pop culture nostalgia podcast you can find on the interwaves, we're your hosts, I'm Ben. And I'm Chris. And this is 80s High. Right out of the gate, though, we are honored because we are not alone. No, we're not. And I'm not talking about close encounters of the third kind, we're not alone. We have an incredible guest host on this podcast. Oh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen... Frogs and Toads, all from all the way in the back, help us welcome Greg to the podcast. <sighs> Thank you, gents. Greg, Pleasure Greg, to be Greg, here. Greg, 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 Greg. <laughs> this is not just any old Greg that you no, might old Greg. know. Old Greg. Greg. I'm old Greg. <laughs> I'm old Greg. This is, in fact, the musician who mm. wrote and performed our theme song for 80s High. The musical master himself. <laughs> We're excited to have you here. Craig. Thank you. Uh, no, I'm super pumped to be here. And I'm going to say it many times. Huge fan of the podcast. I've listened to every single episode. I am that guy. We got one. And, at we the top of his lungs. Yeah, we got one. Uh, I, I am that guy screaming at the top of his lungs, driving down the freeway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Saying, how do you not know that? a metaphorical person, but now we know you're a real flesh and blood person. It's not just in Ben's imagination. Yeah, almost run off the the road several times. So, yeah. (laughs) Greg, there's a unique opportunity because we have here. You know, we always talk about influences when we get to like contemporary culture and things like that. Do you have some insight you'd share with us of like what helped inspire you to write the theme song to 80s High? Anything Mm. you pulled from? Oh, actually, yeah. Um, So these things always come to you in... The bathroom, because you're, you know, not thinking about it. (laughs) Uh, Usually, like, some people, like, shower thoughts, that kind of thing. And I think I had just been listening to... Do you know that song, The Sailors Say Brandy, You're a Fine Girl? Sailors Say oh Brandy, God, great song. You're a Fine you're Girl, a fine what girl, a good wife. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. And um, China Road. Oh, China Road. Oh, oh yeah. Um, so it's, I, I think it's a kind of like a blend of those two things. And then just every 80s sound trope I could 
possibly think of. Um, drum machines and synth. Oh, yeah. And to be honest, I, I, I think I could have gone a little further. <laughs> but I, tra- I, I tried. And then uh, Chad's uh, rock and vocals. It's like, oh, that's oh going to be the perfect mm. fit. So, yeah, that's kind of how that came together. Oh, it's awesome. I told Ben that if we could get a catchy earworm, that would be amazing. And I mean, I think you delivered for us, man. Everyone freaking loves the theme song. It's fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. We can see how much of the episode people listen to on iTunes. And 80% of our <laughs> listeners just stop when the theme song's over. Every 30 week. seconds and they're done. As yeah. soon as our voices come on, they're like, they're done. Like, oh, done. I came for the music and I'm done. <laughs> In fact, we can see exactly. And it doesn't just say... Pause. It says hard stop. It's like, I'm out of here. (laughs) Since we've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast, I do want to give a quick update. So Mystery Science Theater 3000, their Kickstarter Mm. did close. They didn't make it. Wait, they didn't make it though, did they? That's a complete lie. They made like $80. Is that right? (laughs) Right. 80 bucks. They're going to make a keychain. If Joel came on our podcast, he would have been successful. Uh. So at the close, as as we recall, this was this Kickstarter campaign to bring back another season of Mystery Science Theater 2000 and to build the Gizmoplex. They're going to have their own platform for the new season. Mm-hmm. They closed with 36,581 backers. They had a goal of $2 million. However, they raised $6,519,019. Boom. Whoa. Y'all be getting some new Mystery Science Theater 3000. Wow. Boom. So well very done. exciting. That's all I have for homeroom. Anything either of you want to drop, what's going on? I think we got to get to those sweet, sweet morning announcements. Attention, 80s high. I'm Casina, but you can call me Al, here to share today's homeroom announcements. If you want to see 101 awesome ways to display diamonds on the soles of your shoes, follow 80s High Podcast on Instagram. Today's lunch menu will be Tostino's Pizza Rolls, and to drink, you can have a choice between Crystal Light and Slice. If you join the class of 80s High, you can be my bodyguard, and I will be your long-lost pal, making sure you know topics in advance, can take sweet surveys, and maybe lend your voice to a future episode. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80s. After school today, join the girls from the flag team for a special clinic on using Aquanet to get maximum height for your bangs. They're rich girls. They don't try to hide it. Thank you and have a bitchin' day. Go Mogwise! Awesome. Well, we have our morning announcements well in hand. Ben, what are we learning about today in 80s High? So, in history class today in 80s High, we are going to go back to learn everything you could possibly ever want to know about Paul Simon's album, Graceland. Woo! Let's run to class. Did you notice while we were coming here, there was sort of a hole in the roof? And when I looked up, I realized we were under African skies. It was sort of ironic. That <laughs> oh, was coincidental. You know what? I, I just knew these were coming. I was like, oh, <laughs> brace yourself, Chris. He's going to pull out the terrible jokes. <laughs> I knew it was coming. Neither puns. Before we get into it, would either of you like to do our listeners the honor of, you know, giving just the high level 10,000 foot view like you're on an airplane flying from New York to South Africa? What was is Graceland by Paul Simon. 
I was under the impression that our guest today, Greg, is like the master genius lover of this album. So I would love to give him the honors to do that. Wow. Thank you. You know, what's ironic is I actually learned a ton about this album as a result of preparing for talking to you guys about it. (laughs) Uh, So uh, a lot of things I didn't know. I'd like for me, I was like, I just have memories of my, you know, the family station wagon cruising back from the Warren Dunes in Michigan listening to this thing. But in a brief nutshell, Graceland uh, was album of the year in 1986. And to hear Paul Simon himself, he actually totes it in, well, this is from a documentary in 1997. He says that Graceland is his single best achievement, um, both Mm -hmm. the album and that individual track itself. Essentially, it's a bunch of South African uh, world rhythms that were recorded in South Africa, uh, and the the background context um, was actually very controversial at the time. He then went to South Africa, recorded this album with a bunch of uh, South Af- African musicians, brought it back to New York, uh, and essentially overlaid his pop vocals and guitar um, with a bunch of production uh, to come up with Graceland, the album, and it's really cool to listen to the jams of these musicians and then uh, put to Paul Simon's songcraft, uh, and that that's kind of Graceland in a nutshell, I'd say. Oh no, this is me. I'm in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. This is me I in knew a nutshell. Oh my goodness. That was I a fantastic that. overview. No, that was great. That was great. That was great. That was great. <laughs> and Greg mentioned a documentary. Another one we just want to mention at the top of history class is Under African Skies. It's on YouTube, produced by Paul Simon. Mm. That's gonna give you an incredible overview of what what went into producing this record. It's incredible. As some of you know, I do like to do a lot of history when we do musicians, and I have a lot here, so I'm going to Go through this at a breakneck speed. He is now the Micro Machines guy. It's Micro Machines. Let's just speed up the audio. (laughs) But I have broken history class into four chapters. Mm. So let's begin with chapter one, Paul Simon's heart. (laughs) So I want to talk about where the artist was at the time. Of course, now you guys have heard of, of Simon and Garfunkel. They were together. They were famous for Sound of Silence and Rosemary and Time. But they had an extremely contentious relationship, these two creatives together. Simon was often in and out of therapy, struggling with depression. He was quoted in 1984 as saying, all I've been looking at this time is a thin slice of pie that has got the bad news in it. And I'm disregarding the rest of the picture. He said the Mm. main causes of his depression were this battle with Garfunkel being short, not having the voice he wanted, not looking how he wants to look, and having a bad relationship. And and Garfunkel would tease him about this stuff. Like, he would tease him about his insecurities. Oh, wow. Uh, they actually kind of resented each other because Paul thought that the audience thought that art was the star, but art knew that Paul was really the superior talent and genius. So they kind of, like, oh, resented wow. each other. Greg, you've been in a lot of different bands. Have you ever seen this sort of creative tension between people and bands? Oh, absolutely. It blows my mind that Simon would be intimidated somewhat by Garfunkel, who is, don't get me wrong, is a fantastic musician, has a a crystal clear, beautiful voice. And also to hear, you know, Simon say, I don't like the sound of his voice, like Jimi Hendrix, most famously the same. And for, you know, me as an 
amateur musician hearing masters of their craft saying, oh, I wish I was a little better. John Mayer, same thing. Like he's like, yeah, yeah you know, I can write a song and I can sing or whatever. But really what, what I want is for people to know me by the sound of my guitar playing alone. Um, he oh. wants like the Clapton or the Hendrix or, you know, the, the Stevie Ray Vaughan, like the, the, that signature sound, which is just utterly ridiculous to me. I'm like, you're, you're one of the most successful musicians of the modern era, but it's just not good enough. You know, (laughs) and I, I think, well, that speaks to creatives in general, but yeah, that is really interesting. I was going to say that does seem to be a common thread I've seen from writers, you know, musicians, as we've talked about, and other creatives that you're always chasing that person that you idolize, that you feel is a step ahead of you. And so even, the people at the top of their craft, you have to wonder like, okay, well, who are you chasing? Right. <laughs> and maybe they're chasing themselves. I don't know. But it is interesting when you hear these people who are just, like you said, masters of the craft who are struggling in some way. You're like, you, you've made it. You're great. But we all have those insecurities. Well, Chris, I want, so that's helpful. I wanted to ask you. So Greg and I not only share the exact same birthday, but I think we're also the exact same height. Really? So I'm 5'4". Greg, are you 5'4", right? Uh, almost. I'm like 5'4". Seven and a half, maybe. Wait, you're, you're, wait, you're taller than me? Yeah. I thought we were the same. Okay. Oh. Uh, well, at any rate, this is Chris totally blew up this <laughs> whole concept here. But we are both short. We are on the shorter end of the spectrum. I we're will both definitely. Yeah. So, so Simon, uh, Paul Simon struggled with being shorter. Chris, do you look down on all short people? Uh, physically, yes. I was going to say uh, literally. Just by the very nature of where I am. I'm 6'3", if you don't know, and I hear shorter people than me talk about it all the time, how they wish they were taller. I honestly do not recognize anyone's height unless they're taller than me mm. or they're very short. Yeah. Like, it just does not register in my brain. Okay. Uh, but That's it's interesting. Like, people say it, but I'm like, yeah, you can reach things high, but then people also ask you to do ridiculous things because of your height. So, yeah. like, can you reach that for me? sword. Grass yeah. is always greener, folks. That's your this object lesson. Fair enough. So, Simon and Garfunkel break up. After their last concert in Jul- July of 1970, they come back for a one-off gig in Central Park in 1981, 11 years later. But they're like, wow, have we gotten far apart from each other. This will never happen mm. again. We are – we're toast. So Simon and Garfunkel is over. Now, Greg also a big well, – I mean, you both are sci-fi space fans, but I know Greg is a huge Star Wars fan. So Simon starts dating Carrie Fisher at the end of the 1970s while she's filming the first Star Wars movie. They meet on SNL, and they marry in August of 1983 and listen to the attendees of this wedding in their apartment. Lorne Michaels, George Lucas, Kevin Klein, Terry Garr, Billy Joel are all at their wedding. That's amazing. Wow. But they divorce 11 months later. And the age difference, because mm. wasn't Carrie Fisher, she was like, what, 19 or something? So young. Uh, so young. For A New Hope. And Simon, it must have been in, what, in, at least in his mid-30s? Big age difference. Wow. Carrie Fisher was a new hope for Paul Simon. It's basically what he <laughs> was seeing. So we've got the Simon and Garfunkel breakup. We've got the Carrie Fisher breakup. And then Simon's previous solo album, Hearts and Bones, comes out in 1983 in just a huge commercial failure. It's the lowest sales of his career. Mm. And so he said, you know, this failure actually felt like it gave him a bunch of freedom because now his record label, Warner, wasn't really watching him closely on what he was going to do. But again, he loses his musical partner, he loses his love partner, and his music's not doing well. So that is where Paul Simon's heart and mind are as we go into this journey. Which brings us to chapter two, The Sound of Africa. Okay. With Paul Simon being kind of a regular on SNL, Lorne Michaels introduces Simon to a house band member, Heidi Berg, and Simon agrees to produce her album for her. 
so that Simon could hear what kind of music she was trying to go for, she gives him a bootlegged cassette tape called Accordion Jive Hits by the Boyoyo Boys, who play Mabakanga, which is the street music from Soweto, a small township in Johannesburg in South Africa. Mm. So Mabakanga has its roots in rural Zulu in the early 1960s. It's a native term that actually means everyday cornmeal porridge. Hmm. These groups used Western instruments starting in the 1960s and combined with South African style, created this sort of like South African jazz. It's viewed as a coalition between Marabi and Kwela. It's been described as the cyclic structure of Marabi with a heavy dollop of American big band swing thrown on top. Oh, that's interesting. That sounds kind of fun. That's a cool mix. Well, you and Paul Simon have something in common because he sure hears do. this music <laughs> and that he's never heard it before. And he's quoted saying it was very good summer music. It was happy music mm. uh, and it reminded him of 1950s R&B. Hmm. So he becomes obsessed. He tracks down the South African record producer, Hilton Rosenthal, who helps him identify all the bands who are like involved in the record. And he sends dozens of records of Mabakanga and other stuff from South Africa to Simon. And Simon's just like listening to this stuff all the time. He's, he's devouring it. And he decides, I have to go to South Africa to produce a record. Have either of you ever been exposed to any sort of like sudden artistic realization that you were like, I want to consume everything that this is. I need to know more. I don't know that I've ever gone down a well quite like that. Obviously, there are things that kind of inspire and influence me, but I can't think of anything that's almost like a, a singular obsession. There's been a few. I don't know if it's been like all in, I need to travel to that place and experience it immediately now to that extent. Yeah, I would say definitely uh, different musical genres um, that I've fallen into. Rodrigo y Gabriela tango music kind of thing when they came out and being like, oh, this is a cool style and exploring that. But no, I, I can't say that I've been like, I need to leave my chair right now and go <laughs> to a place uh, to be fully immersed. Yeah, that, that's mm. pretty that's a pretty strong calling. Then again, I yeah. guess I also didn't have the, the freedom of just saying, like, I want to go and record an album anywhere in the world, and I can do that because I'm Paul Simon. <laughs> <laughs> fair, <Right>? fair point. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I've ever, like, drunk the Kool-Aid of something so deep that I needed to travel for it as much as I could. But, like, I remember, man, probably five or six years ago, it was the first time I ever heard Electro Swing. Like, I heard the band Power of Stellar. And I was like, this is so fun. I've never heard anything like this before. And I like consumed so much electro swing mm. to the point that like people heard it and they're like, are you cool? It's like, is everything all right? <laughs> it's like, it's just so unique. It's fun. It's cool. Yeah. Well, that brings us to chapter three, Apartheid. This is not a good chapter. No. <laughs> so we cannot understand the significance of Paul Simon's album without addressing the massive elephant in the room talking about Apartheid. I'm going to go through this objectively, basically just reading textbook of what happened. There are massive books, there are college courses, there are degrees you can get in studying apartheid and what happened, and we're just going to give you a really textbook overview because it is essential to understand the context in which this album was produced. Yeah. Here we go. Racial segregation had long been legally sanctioned in South Africa, but its national party created apartheid in 1948. Beginning in 1950, the party began passing a laundry list of laws that first classified all South Africans into four different groups, black Africans, mixed race, Indian and Pakistani, or white, and white by far is a significant minority in the entire country. The party then establishes residential and business sections in each city, and these racial groups were forbidden from participating in the other sections without very difficult to obtain paperwork, which, as you can understand, this made culture and music like Mebakanga nearly impossible to spread outside of these neighborhoods and villages. 80% of this land they divvied up 
went to whites. Again, the superior minority in the whole country. Other laws forbade these groups socializing with one another, restricted access to certain jobs, authorized public facility segregation, established different racial education standards, and denied non-white participation in the government. There were a lot of demonstrations that resulted in a lot of violence and a lot of death from Mm. uh, the South African government. South Africa was thus booted out of the British Commonwealth of Nations in 1961, and in 1985, remember, this is the year that the record is getting worked on and Paul Simon's going, the UK and the United States imposed a number of economic sanctions on South Africa. The sanction clearly states to, quote, prevent all cultural, academic, sporting, and other exchanges with South Africa and ordered all writers, artists, musicians, and other personalities to boycott the country. Non-white South Africans were also prohibited from traveling outside of the country. In 1986, in response, South Africa just abolished the law that made you have to carry the papers to move between restricted areas. So you didn't have to Hmm. show your papers. And then lastly, things didn't really improve until the 1990s when the new president, F.W. de Klerk, repealed most of the apartheid policies in 1991. And in 1994, the country had its first black president. Which is mind-boggling in the whole continent of Africa. South Africa has its first black president in 1994, who we've all heard this name, which is exciting to hear on this podcast, Nelson Mandela, Mm. who helped bring into effect a new constitution in 94, which effectively, on paper, brought an end to apartheid. Of course, there was still cultural racial tension for long afterwards. And actually, while Paul Simon is in Johannesburg recording, Mandela's actually in jail during this time. He was in prison for like, what, 20 years, I think? It was a long time. Yeah. I remember when, you know, he was finally freed from prison and it was like a huge, huge deal around the world. Yeah. I mean, since we're talking pop culture, one of my memories of Mandela is actually... For you little whippersnappers who listen to the podcast, uh, there was a time when there were no Googles or Ask Jeeves or (laughs) Yahoos. And you've got the world on a disc called Encarta. Do you guys remember Encarta? Of course, of course. So it was sort of like a virtual encyclopedia that also had mixed media in it. And as it booted up, it was this sort of like music and it was this montage of history and science. And you heard a Nelson Mandela speech as Encarta booted up. I always thought it was cool. That was quick and textbook for apartheid. Anything you guys would like to add or bring emphasis to on apartheid in South Africa? I think we'll get into some of it as it pertains to Paul Simon. I think you laid a good foundation in terms of how it will apply to Paul's work on this album. Which brings us to chapter four, the production. So in February of 1985, like right after the US and the UK imposed these sanctions on South Africa, saying musicians don't go to South Africa or work with South Africa, Simon is a longtime engineer, Roy Haley, fly to South Africa, trying to keep it on the download. Like I said, Simon bombed his last two solo albums, so he's like, Warner doesn't really care what I'm going to do, so I'll just go to South Africa during this massive boycott and produce an album. And he said, quote, I knew I would be criticized if I went, even though I wasn't going to record for the government or to perform for segregated audiences. I was following my musical instincts and wanting to work with people whose music I greatly admired. So I see this as this massive trip that he's doing to potentially work through a lot of these challenges he's been facing over the last decade, like losing all these people close to him, his albums bombing. Are there any trips, whether road trips or somewhere farther that either of you have ever taken to help you work through something that you've been going through? Never a major trip. I know I've done like a few road trips, but not like I'm going to another part of the world or for a long time. It's like, I need to get out of this headspace and I go drive somewhere. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In retrospect, now it was a link at the time. I, I wouldn't say it was an immediate reaction, but at U of I, where Ben and I were in undergrad together, uh, I had recently broken up with a girlfriend. of. We were together for about a year. Um, and it was the summer of my junior year, and I should have been doing some kind of business internship or something like that. But an opportunity came up to go teach sailing at a summer camp in Minnesota. And I didn't really do any research or anything to investigate more. I just said, you know what, there's something that's telling me I should. And so I just up and went. And it's actually the Yeah, the first place where I showed up and I didn't know anyone or anything about what I was going to be doing or or the camp culture, uh, any of that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I just kind of showed up and week one ended up meeting my now wife. Uh, and that oh. will be 15 years ago this June, which is crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Happy anniversary, because this came out right at your anniversary. Oh, you. nice. So that's great. <laughs> that's great. Perfect. Slip it in there. Um, in retrospect, yeah, I was definitely like, I just need to get the F out of Dodge and uh, do something different. And it, it ended up being, of course, obviously a momentous positive life-changing event i was gonna say is the old knight in the mountain says you chose wisely yes. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't be sitting here telling us about that boring business internship is all i'm gonna say <laughs> yeah amen i'm pretty sure that <laughs> never happens i love that and so we all we also asked the class of 80s high where would you travel in the world to find inspiration when you're in a challenging time Someone said Iceland, which yeah. is interesting. I have not been. Have either of you been to Iceland? No. I'm not. It looks beautiful. Though. It does look Okay, cool. it does look beautiful. Some jokester said the rain's down in Africa. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least they're on topic. At least they're on topic. I like it. That's good. This person knows their music history. This person said, I really like the idea of Jimmy Page and John Bonham getting inspired for Fool in the Rain from the World Cup in Argentina. So they're going to say wow. Expo 2023 in Buenos Aires. Wow. All right. That is specific like and cool. Yeah. I want to learn more about that story later. Seriously. Uh, World Cup game. This is great. So Simon gets in South Africa. He gathers a ton of artists in Johannesburg at Ovation Studios, and he pays them all 200 bucks an hour, which at the time in South Africa for artists recording, the going rate was 15 bucks an hour. Yeah. I would take $200 an hour uh, in 2021. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, and even at the time, what he's paying them in Johannesburg is triple the rates in New York City for hourly recording, which is yeah. awesome. And he also offers writers royalties where appropriate when artists contributed to writing it. Right. So he is really bringing this economic stimulus to like the, the local music scene in South Africa. Uh, they'd host these 10 to 30 minute jam sessions and what kind of felt like a garage. And then he'd assemble them into tracks later. And Simon recalled, quote, in the middle of this euphoric feeling in the studio, you'd have reminders that you're living in an incredibly tense racial environment where the law of the land was apartheid. Uh, when they recorded late into the evening, he actually remembered that artists would become tense because they couldn't be found on the streets or in public transit after curfew. And he's only there for like two weeks. So they zi he zips back to New York and then he flies several of the groups over to New York also to keep recording and polish some stuff off, which actually results in the tracks You Can Call Me Al and Under African Skies. Over the next several months, he keeps writing and recording with other groups, uh, including Linda Ronstadt, the Everly Brothers, Good Rock and Dopsy and the Twisters, and Los Lobos. So the record is released by Warner in September uh, 86 with virtually no marketing effort, which, Greg, I have to warn you, Chris and the 80s hate marketing. Uh, yes, 
And the never-ending story, apparently. Wow. Okay, we don't like bad slash evil marketers. That's what we don't like. That's true. But can you imagine a a record dropping from the Paul Simon and there's virtually no promotion of it? Crazy. And Paul says, quote, it could have been that I've reached the point in my career where I can't be a viable commercial force in popular music anymore, he says, right around the release. And last but not least, the cover art uh, was an Ethiopian Christian icon from around 1500 from the Peabody Essex Museum collection. That, everybody, is history class. Now, what did I miss? Anything you guys want to go back, emphasize, uh, points that I missed? uh, Let's make sure we leave no track unplayed. The only other thing I would add is I, there was some recording done in London as well for oh, the album. Right. It wasn't just solely New York City, but other than that, yeah, I think you hit everything else. Well, we have specifically brought a musician here tonight because we're covering such an incredible album. So there's only one class we can go to, which is no longer chemistry. We're jogging down the hallway. I don't know if you guys, what kind of shoes you guys are wearing, but I have diamonds on the soles of my shoes. <laughs> no, We're going to go down to music appreciation class. Greg, there's get so into much this album. more of this ahead of us. There's so much more. Uh, oh. I can't wait. <laughs> Let's do it. You could have tap danced on the way here. That would have been appropriate. That's kind of like music and walking at the same time. It's rhythm Ooh, and walking. Musical tap walking. Dance. That's true. I had two giant trash cans. Tied to my feet, so I was like, "Stomp!" You would stop. There you go. I thought you were gonna pull a big because that's musical walking and like a big keyboard down the hallway. See, I was thinking more of like the Jets from West Side Story, and I'm (laughs) sashaying and snapping. You snapped all the way down the hallway. (laughs) So, just a quick little overview. Graceland pops out. It's an eclectic mixture of musical styles, including pop, acapella, zydeco, isakatha mia. The album alternates between playful and more serious songs. Simon thought of it uh, like a play. Quote, as in a play, the mood should keep changing. A serious song may lead into an abstract song, which may be followed by a humorous song. Mm -hmm. So to kick this part off, both of you, do you have memories of any of the songs on this album, the album as a whole, the whole uh, environment and atmosphere surrounding the production of Graceland? What, What do you remember about this album? So I cannot remember the first time I've heard this album because I would have been probably two or three years old. And I'm the youngest of four. So my siblings solidly in the 80s culture growing up. So yeah, I had mentioned like specific memories of being very young in the family car, rocking out to this album. And I think I've actually purchased it twice. Uh, the original and then the 25th anniversary edition. Nice. Mm. And I'm going to purchase it a third time because I need it on vinyl <laughs> as well. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> I, so we picked this topic and then there was an estate sale down the block from me. And I always try to go to estate sales because I'm always looking for vinyls. And I was like, I in the back of my mind, all I wanted to do was to find Graceland. Oh, yeah. Did you? did you? I did not. I found oh. some amazing music. Like, I got some good Ella Fitzgerald. I got some good Count Basie. Ooh, I even nice. got some original George Carlin albums. Okay. Whoa. So, Greg, if you find one... Oh, if yeah. you find two, <laughs> give me one of them. Absolutely. And I'll hit you back. Yeah, no, I still owe you because you got me the the Star Wars soundtrack on vinyl. So yeah, yeah I found that all the way in Pennsylvania. That was good. That yeah. was fun. I'm glad you didn't say you got me the Star Wars Christmas special. Then oh, I would have been no. like, oh, he owes you way <laughs> more so. than oh, just they're one. Not friends. I get it. They hate each other. Cool. Yeah, okay. he owes me. So that, and then um, I've always listened to it 
my entire life from being a kid. And then in high school, we almost did a cover of some of the tunes with a, um, a, a guy that was classically trained, a really good guitarist. Oh, wow. At, at that summer camp, Katie uh, had never heard that album. And she was had just gotten back from the Peace Corps in West Cameroon. Oh. And she, of course, knew Simon and Garfunkel and Paul Simon and all that. But she hadn't heard that album specifically. And so we kind of from the beginning of our relationship have always loved the album as well. And we will revisit Mm. it in its entirety. Well, every time we road trip, which is less and less frequent with a five and a three year old. But yeah, (laughs) I mean, it has been on more or less constant repeats. Like I just listened to it again, of course, before recording here and just where I am in my life and context now knowing more about the album itself and more knowledge uh, about some of the tracks and how they came about and Paul Simon specifically talking about what he was doing with the tracks and the documentary I watched, which was just called Graceland. uh, It was on Amazon. It's like 60 minutes. And it's really mostly just Paul Simon sitting down at a console playing back the recording and talking about the different tracks and what's going on here. It's, it's fascinating. And then Philip Glass is also in that documentary, famous American composer and talking about the recording process and how Simon really constructed it after it had been recorded, which was not typical at the time, especially this is in the days of tape, right? Before you can easily splice audio and Pro Tools and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Like one of the most famous examples would be Queen, Bohemian Rhapsody. They overdubbed that tape so many times that the magnetic tape was see-through in some spots because it had been through the machine (laughs) so many times. But like that was the era like super ballsy for Simon to go to South Africa, grab a bunch of jams, essentially, like bring him back to a polished professional studio and all the weight of Warner Brothers and everything else behind it and turn it into a masterpiece. It speaks to both the talent and the heart of the music and the musicians in South Africa, as well as Simon's vision and his songcraft and the, the and, and turning what would otherwise be you know obscure world music into pop lexicon I and like call me Al uh, they talk about it and it's got everything I mean it's got the hook da 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 as simple as can be Simon talks about you know how he can't fit the lyrics that he wrote originally for the song but the hook and the groove were so great that he had to keep Mm. them and it kind of sounds like this rambling uh lyrical verse a little bit but now to hear it back of course like you couldn't imagine anything else right i i don't know how many times i it's got to be in triple digits i've heard this album like start to finish in its entirety in a vehicle somewhere. Is your CD now clear in spots? Is that how it's come <laughs> right. to be? You've played it oh, so yeah. many times. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned Call Me Out. That's pretty much my remembrance as a child of this album. I don't 
really remember any of the other songs, but obviously my biggest connection to it is the music video. Ah. Because when MTV came out, we would like watch MTV in our house. And of course, Call Me Out has that iconic thing with him and Chevy Chase. And they're, he's mock playing instruments and Chevy's pretending to sing. And as a kid, I just thought that was freaking hilarious. And of course, I always knew the song and I like it. It's like you mentioned, it's got a very catchy hook. It's simple, but very just, you know, there's something magnetic about it. And all these other songs, I don't think until I listened to this album for this podcast episode, I don't think I had really heard any of them. So I'm kind of like right in the middle of you guys. Like I don't have old memories of music because actually I didn't really start to get into music until like the early 90s. Mm. Um, And my brother, like we've talked a lot, was the big influence. I'll never forget the Christmas where my brother gave me Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones. And I opened it and I was like six. And just the look on my parents' face of the album cover of Sticky Fingers and the album being what it was. And then that's when my musical journey really started. So thanks again. <laughs> oh, that Christmas he got me that and Babylon by Bus by Bob Marley. So that was like the start of my musical journey. It's a good start. It's a good yeah, start. Yeah, I was going to say, those are yeah. good, those are good <laughs> yeah. ones. So similarly, I think this week was not, this was the first time I listened to the album from start to finish, but a lot of the songs I'd heard piecemeal over the years. So like I'd mm. heard Under African Skies, I'd heard Graceland, but of course, You Can Call Me Out. So since we've all mentioned You Can Call Me Out, let's get into You Can Call Me Out a little bit, and then we'll bring it back up to high level. So we asked the class of 80s, hi, what are your memories from this album too? And everybody Mm. is all like, you can call me Al. So the first person was driving across country with my aunt. We listened to the tape of Graceland over and over and over and over. Loved, you can call me Al. Oh, and also listened to Rhythm of the Saints. Two more people said, you can call me Al. But one person remembered pop-up video. Do you guys remember pop-up videos? Of course. VH1. On on VH1 where like little facts would pop up about it while you watch the video. I love that. That was a big deal. Um, and then this poor person, there was a time when I was like five-ish when my dad played You Can Call Me Out and In the Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics on repeat. It was weird. <laughs> this sounds like the John Mulaney bit where they're playing What's New Pussycat? Like uh, at a diner like right. 50 times in a row. <laughs> Chris, you actually made a little joke right before we started that you kind of know maybe a little bit of where the origin came from of You Can Call Me Al. Yeah. So uh, Paul and his wife, Peggy, were hosting a party and there was a composer who came over as a guest. And when he's leaving, he refers to them as Al and Betty. So that's how those lyrics, uh, I can call you Betty, baby, you can call me Al. That's how that got into the track. And of course, the title. I love it. That's awesome. Greg, I want to point a million microphones at you because uh, we talked about the hook. We talked about uh, what makes the song so iconic. Can you give us the hook? Yeah. Let's see. Oh. It's the, like the main theme of it, right? So. Yeah. And then what's great is there's the horn overlay on it. The whole album has melodically like is overwhelmingly major. It's in a major key of some kind. So like, you know, you're getting that whole happy vibe feeling as opposed to a minor, which is like, ooh, it's dark and ominous. Gloom, trouble, problems. (laughs) So you got the and then if you overlay a harmony. Right? And then you just build from there. And it, and and he used the, like it's mostly done in the horn section, which is why yeah, Chevy Chase is doing the saxophone. Which I when he was talking about it, 
they recorded a different music video for it. And it totally fell flat. Nobody liked it at the end of it. Paul goes to Lauren Michaels. He's like, hey, I don't like this. You're, you know, a TV guy that makes awesome, funny stuff. What should we do? That's when he suggested, oh, how about you just, you know, do something with Chevy? Like, it'll be great. Um, And so then came out with that video, which everybody loves. The one person on the planet that does not love it, Paul Simon. He he thinks it detracts from the message of the song because there are more serious undertones later on, like the third verse. Um, It's kind of like this coming into the world moment where you're out of, you break out of wherever you are and you go to a place and experience things for the first time that you have never experienced before and it changes you. And that's like, it's kind of this transformational song to hear him describe it. And so Mm. he uh, was a little bummed that it turned into this funny quip with Chevy. But again, for the average music listener, uh, because of course, Paul Simon is a very deep individual, but it's hard because he lives in a pop genre. (laughs) So even with Simon and Garfunkel, he wrote these really intrinsic and like lyrically heavy tunes, uh, but often would be over happy melodies and beautiful harmonies and uh you know all all that was kind of lost in the music itself and that definitely i think that definitely happened with graceland i want to go back i love how you pointed out how paul simon like really did not like the you can call me al music video because in the music video he's miserable too yes (laughs) because chevy's like stealing the limelight like playing and singing all the lyrics yes and paul's just like really sad whipping out how he plays like 10 different instruments yeah and he's like keep going back into the room and also just to see like paul simon next to chevy chase and you're like oh my god <laughs> he's a giant wow. the high difference exactly yeah, chevy's a giant. He, he really is <laughs> if chris and i ever do this podcast like as a live show that's what it's gonna look like yeah that would be almost identical yeah. <laughs> and one last like technical thing about that track that we can't have a podcast without talking about is of course the, the iconic bass solo uh, which is a full break in the middle of the song can you play it? No, no one can. Um, it's physically, Im- <laughs> it's actually physically impossible to play. Is the, that Paul the, it, it, in, it, bass or? in its entirety? No, I forget the bassist's name. Um, he's in the documentary. Yes, he's in the documentary, and he plays a fretless bass, which, by the way, is like an upright bass, but like an electric version of that. So oh, fretless no roadmap. No so frets. fretless, which is why he's able to do boom and like slides and and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff with it. What it is, is he played the first half of it, which was recorded, and then it was played backwards in reverse and strung together. So it's... And it's like, it's it's forward and back. It, it comes out sounding like one line, but yeah, uh, technically impossible to play. <laughs> you know, if you play an episode of 80s High Podcast in reverse, it's instructions on how to build a flux capacity. <laughs> Just Ooh. if you want to try it out. Don't give it away so cool. soon. So, sorry, so soon. Yeah, you have to assemble all 20, like a Transformers, like a uh, you know, yes. like, um, Thundercats sort of assembly. That's right. So we asked the class of 80s High, what is your favorite track off of Graceland? And the majority came back 40% saying Graceland was their favorite track. And Greg, you talked about 
road tripping is like when you listen to this album. And when I think of the song Graceland, like it is such of like driving in the car, like a road tripping kind of song. Like talk to me about Graceland. The opening lyric, Mississippi Delta shining like a national guitar, which, but do you know what a national guitar is? I did not when the first time I heard. Oh, that's like, like a, that's like a real thing. Yeah. So a national. I thought it was like a metaphor. No, no, no. A national guitar is the steel topped guitar that has that really twangy sound. Oh, I can picture that. So that's the scene, like the, the Mississippi Delta shining like a national guitar. Guitar. I'm following the river through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland. Like, that's the opening lyric of the song. And yes, it totally sets up a road trip. It is like he's driving. It's like he's road yeah. tripping. Um, so it starts where it's actually a very specific physical place. And he never intended to keep Graceland as the lyric. Which, by the way, I've been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and Paul Did you Simon's by chance no- ask them why Pat Benatar is not inside? <laughs> when I found that Speechless. out- Speechless, Speechless. I, yeah, flabbergasted. I was like, what? How they- yeah, And I'm with you. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, the zombie, boom, boom, boom. Like, that's a great tune, but- Right. Versus five platinum albums and, you know, on and on and on, all the accolades. Is is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, is it like the Hollywood stars where you it's like a pay-to-play kind of deal? And she's yeah, just that's kind of what I'm wondering. She's like, she's just not into it. I also feel like it's American Idol. Just because you win didn't mean you're the best yes. music artist or oh. singer. Is all I'm saying. Oh, so, yes. you know what, yeah. Pat? Hold your head up high. That's right. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm a benetorologist for sure after that episode. <laughs> the, the Rock and Hall of Fame is just another dirtbag in her way for her to just plow through. <laughs> dirtbag, hey, like, drink. If you're not aside. driving, drink. Hey, drink. Chris said dirtbag. Uh, drink oh, if you're right. not on the road. Um, Cheers, everybody. Uh, all we need Cheers. is a hag reference, and, and we've got a complete. <laughs> yes! See, he has us in every episode. Yeah. We, might, we might fit a hag in it. It's got to come natural, but we'll see. Yeah, and, and when it's not there for my Monday morning commute, I'm like ready to scream at Ben on G-Chat. <laughs> instantaneously. <laughs> Where's my episode? So it's interesting you mentioned about the lyrics because in the documentary, Paul Simon is like, I was in New York and the words, I'm going to Graceland popped in my head and I was like, oh man, I need to go to Graceland. That's what Paul Simon says. He makes a trip down to Memphis to like learn more about it and like see it. Yeah. And so he's like, yep, I have no connection to Elvis. Like, no, not interested, but just like, I liked how it sounded. I liked how yeah. it sounded, and essentially the entirety of the time he was recording was trying to come up with something better than Graceland, and he couldn't. And he said, you know what, I'm just going with it. And so it starts off as a very physical place, and by the end of the song, he's not talking about place anymore. Um, there is no location. It's Graceland as a metaphorical, as opposed yeah. to a very physical place. The groove set up, like that, that, again, that sliding bass could not be done if you had a fretted bass, um, like you couldn't do that because you can't, you'll hear individual notes as you slide up, but if you have a fretless, it's, it's, it's a lot smoother. Anyway, like that groove sets up, he starts, like the lyrics open it up, just some of the, the imagery she said, losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees you're blown apart. Everybody feels the wind blow. Mm. For me, um, some of Paul Simon's lyrics I don't think have equal, um, especially in the pop rock realm, but just in, in music, musicality in general. And I, it's all on display. And to hear Paul Simon talk about that song, he says, this is it. This is the best thing I've ever done. This track. Wow. 
that was pretty powerful uh, to, That's to hear awesome. come out from him, his mouth. Yeah. Coming into this, I've probably known more Paul Simon songs than I realized. Yeah. You know, just heard them out yeah. there. And so coming into this one and really paying attention to it, I love the lyricist in him. He does such an amazing job. I love lyrics of songs that they just twist it in a way that makes you stop and go, what did I just hear? Mm -hmm. Like, whoa, what? You know, like diamonds on the sole of her shoes, like something as simple as that. And you're like, what? Hold on. What does that mean? Or all around the world or the myth of fingerprints. And you're like, to use a Ben-ism, what? You know, it's like, what What? does that even mean? (laughs) You know, I can't remember which song it is, but there's one where he says, these are the roots of the rhythm and the roots of the rhythm remain. And it's just, it's that turn of phrase. It's sort of dovetailing words in a way that you're just playing with language. As a communications person, I love that part of music. And I thought like, (laughs) I'm just calling him Al Simon. I thought... (laughs) He's out. I keep wanting to call him as Neil Simon, which is the other name. Somebody, (laughs) I think he was on stage at the Apollo Theater, if I remember correctly. I was, I, this is when he was talking to um, Letterman in one of his interviews. And he's like, I was at, on stage at the Apollo Theater and the guy who was like moderating kept calling me Neil. And he's like, people in the crowd were yelling, Paul, it's Paul. Oh, yeah. And the guy wasn't getting it. And then finally, <laughs> so now like Neil Simon sounds right. Like I almost want to call him Neil <laughs> yeah. Simon. So, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond. I think that's why it is. It's so close. There it yeah, is. Yeah. There you go. But anyway, I, I just, I love that aspect of his writing and the fact that he took all those jams, like Greg mentioned, back to New York and then figured out the lyrics. Like yeah. those came last and he had to wrap it around. You know, I, I guess there's so many ways you can do it. Sometimes the lyrics lead and then you write the music around it, vice versa. But the fact that he was able to do it, and I think so poetically on pretty much all the tracks was really cool. Yeah, the uh, in the documentary, Whoopi Goldberg says that her favorite lyric in the entire album is "Boy in the Bubble" and "The Baby with the Baboon Heart." Yeah, which "Boy in the Bubble" seems and, and Greg, maybe you can correct me on this, but like the lyrics seem to be just like the wonders of the progression of the world, just yeah. to acknowledge like the amazing things that are happening. Yeah, but she loves that lyric. Even Oprah's in the documentary where she's like, "This is my favorite album of all time." Wow. Um, but speaking of of lyrics, I want to talk just a second about Lady Smith Black Mombazo because when oh, we started yeah. getting ready for this, I was like, I actually know this band. Oh, you know, we can all get stuck in our own little whirlpools of media or culture that we like, and we just keep regurgitating it. You know, we've all got those like four movies we've watched over and over and over again. Or like Greg, every time you road trip, Graceland goes on. Like, it's just (laughs) you played. So I, I had gotten out of college and I was stuck in the same music and I needed new music. So every week I would go to the library and I would just flip through CDs and just pick 10 10 CDs, because that was the limit the library would let you take, that I had never heard before, that I never knew what the band was. And most of them were just dumps. They're like, they're, I never knew what they were. But I got a Ladysmith Black Bombazo, because I was like, this oh. is such a fun name. What is this? And I was so struck, because it's beautiful. Now, is it all acapella? Yes. When they get interviewed, and I love them in the Under African Skies documentary, because they get talked to a lot. But the sounds they make are their sounds they're trying to recreate in rural South Africa. So there's like sounds of frogs. It's cute in the documentary where one guy's like, yeah, it's the wind and the crickets. And you see the other guy lean over a little bit and he's like excited to say something. The wind and the crickets and the howling and frogs. And the second guy goes, yeah, 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 the frogs. (laughs) (laughs) He's so excited about the sounds of frogs at night in their music. But I just love every uh, – there's a couple of tracks that they're in. Diamonds on the Soul of Her Shoes. Yeah, and yeah. Homeless. Homeless. Homeless, yeah. Homeless, yeah, right. That's a really yeah. big one. Uh, but yeah. they are just beautiful vocalists and just oh, yeah. like 
pulling that sound of rural South Africa, like the natural sound is so cool. Well, so apparently cool. they, I, like after this recording, the album came out, like they joined Simon on SNL and did a performance. And apparently like that's one of the most highly regarded, if not one of the best performances on SNL, which has been on for like, what, 40 some yeah. years. Wow. That's amazing. Did either of you happen to watch it? I tried to find it and I couldn't find it. I found a live tour where he performed with them. So I got a sense of what it might have been like, but I couldn't find the SNL I skit. will send it. I got okay. goosebumps. Robin Williams introduces them. Wow. That's right. And then they do it. And Lady Smith Black Mombazo has a whole dance routine that they do it. But when it's over, the audience goes bonkers. That's like awesome. everyone's on their feet, screaming, losing their minds. And, in, and actually, in the documentary, Lady Smith Black Mombasa talks about it, and they're like, that's when we knew everything was about to change. And they that's became awesome. international stars after yeah. that performance. Uh, please send it. I want to see it. It's ben, you might so not remember good. this. I think we actually saw them at Lollapalooza. Did we? I what? think we did, yes. They were on one of the stages... It was like after John Butler trio or something on like, I'm pretty sure they were, it was towards the end of the, it was later on in the day. It was like evening. No it was like almost nighttime. I'm pretty sure they were on the billing the night, the day that we were there though. I just remember all of us falling asleep on a picnic blanket to iron and wine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That'll put you to sleep. Yeah, it will oh indeed. They're really great, but man, this stuff is slow. <laughs> yeah. That'll so put get, you to sleep. So we've talked about some lyrics. We've talked about a couple of the hooks. Like what, what else from the album? album musically do we need to get into what else is is genius and unique to me i love an album that explores and is expansive and you know we all know those artists that were like every track sounds the same i defy you yes you listener you (laughs) listen to graceland right now you tell me all of those songs and all of those tracks are not amazingly unique in some way or another even though you get accordion on several of them you have some of the same musicians throughout obviously simon's and all of it it's just i love the fact that i was like wow they're all kind of this fun tune and they play well together and i really like it when artists make an album where all the tracks do well on their own but together they create this bigger thing like i think of like green day's american idiot where it's like this experimental album where like lyrics come back themes or names come back the songs often dovetail right into each other now that doesn't happen on this one but It reminded me a little bit of that or like Radiohead's OK Computer, where you just have these like crazy lyrics where you're like, what did I just hear? Hold on. Let me reverse. What was that now? Like baby in the baboon's heart. What? Like that kind of stuff. Like that's what I really loved about listening to uh, to the album. With that point and knowing you, I can't believe you didn't say the Lily White Sessions for Dave Matthews. Oh, yeah. Super weird experimental. Actually, honestly, I would have said... um, before these crowded streets. I'm trying not to oh, only yeah. talk about nice. Dave, but I would have said before these crowded streets. <laughs> yeah, feel free to tune into before these crowded streets. Chris's Dave Matthews That's my uh, Dave podcast. I honestly, you know, since you mentioned it, I didn't want to always talk about Dave, but I did want to mention. Oh, what was that? I missed it. Oh, I missed that it. was a little, a little baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. Which he is from South Africa, isn't he? Dave Matthews. Yes, yeah, he grew up in South Africa. That's right. Yeah. But before these crowded streets, I would hold in that regard as well. Just these these albums that like you wanna listen to the whole thing. There's some other albums where you're like, I'll take a track or two off of this that are cool. But there's some where you're like, I want to listen to this whole thing because that unto itself is a bigger experience. And that's what I really enjoyed about Graceland. Hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the jam session grooves are so mm. tight. 
you just feel it. You're immediately put in the room with everybody and everybody's just jamming to the Mm. exact same groove and rhythm. And what I thought was really interesting now the like hearing because I I honestly did not know how the album was put together until like a couple weeks ago, not realizing like he didn't have a single thing written, just got these jam sessions and brought them back and then, you know, pieced it together. And you can tell in the album what's really interesting is a lot of the tracks fade out um, or have a fade out component Mm. to them. And the reason is. They were they jamming going. for 15, 20, 30 minutes. Right. And so it's like, okay, we, we got to, you know, just like, you know, let's lower the faders here. And uh, <laughs> and the, like that, that, that's how like the tracks end. Yeah. But yeah, it's the tight grooves. And I am a, an eternal optimist. And so like the happy emotions just welling from the music itself. You wouldn't even have to look at any of the musicians playing, but you just could just tell that they were smiling. Right. And that just comes through. Uh, and then, of course, just rhythm. The rhythm section in, you know, your traditional rock band would be the bass and the drums. When you have a bassist as talented, coming up with amazing lines, and then just the tight, tight rhythm section, which, you know, if you throw on the, the 80s drum machine sound to it, eh, I don't know, we can talk about that later, you know, how does it hold up, um... Is it 280s or, um, but I think it transcends Mm. that. Anyway, to your point, Chris, the sum of the parts, you know, or the whole being greater than the sum kind of thing, in its entirety, the whole thing is such a work. You guys are both putting the uh, the emphasis on appreciation in music appreciation class. This is awesome. Anything else specifically about the music from the album that we need to touch on before we we scoot on down the hallway? I just want to say there's so many sweet guitar licks in that. Oh, like, yeah. I'm just hearing all the, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I love yeah. it. I love it. Like, yeah. That's great. Oh, yeah. Individual so lines. I mean, I could talk for five hours to each individual <laughs> track. So I will just say I like it. <laughs> well, Ben, you haven't talked a lot about your experience with that's it. That's true. you kind of hosting this, which is great. But I'm curious, was there a track that you really liked? Was there a part of the album you really like? I mean, I hate to be like, I mean, we're putting the pop in the pop culture, but like, You Can Call Me Out is really fun. Like, I oh, think yeah. I've it's used, a fun tune. I, every time I go on any kind of like international trip or do like a big event, I always like to do like a highlight reel, like a little video thing to share with the people who are on the trip to be like, hey, remember this cool thing we did? And I've definitely used You Can Call Me Out on like a fun summer trip we did or something like that because it's a great jam. I just noticed in my watch of, rewatch of it this week, there's something I had always missed. Um, there's a stand next to Chevy. That's for one of the African drums that Paul Simon brings out later to drum on. But the joke, Chevy thinks it's a side table. (laughs) So he keeps like going to set like a drink on it and it just falls through the stand. He like goes to set the flute and it falls through the stand onto the floor and crashes. That's great. Homeless is gorgeous. It's so ephemeral. It just sits with you and it sounds like it's late at night in a grassy plain, maybe by a little babbling brook somewhere. It's just this peaceful, beautifully haunting track kind of thing. I love Mm. Homeless. Boy in the Bubble is just fun to like hear him mention things and try to be like, oh yeah, that's right. They like made the first artificial heart around there. Right. Like they accomplished this and they did this, like trying to remember all the cool things that he's basically becoming a catalog for major events in the 80s for what he's writing. It's almost like uh, Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, Which is so a little idea. easier to follow. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's Very not 10,000 pop culture references. And Ben, I just wanted to mention about Homeless because I thought this was so interesting. So one of the members of Ladysmith Black Mombazo, who are the main vocalists on Homeless, his name is Joseph Shabalala. And he said, 
about this song. We're far away from home and we're sleeping. Our fists are our pillows. Mm. Again, it th- almost felt like that could have been a lyric in this album. Like, it, there's just something very evocative of those words. I don't know. It just kind of goes along with, like you said, the kind of haunting beauty of that track. When I was in Cub Scouts, I always hated bringing a pillow with me. So I would bend my elbow at like a, like a hundred degree angle and I'd always just sleep on my elbow. And so now I can sleep on my elbow camping anywhere. Like I never bring pillows when wow. we camp. It's ridiculous. I was going to say, at what point in time do you wake up and your arm is just numb? <laughs> it's just like <laughs> all over my forearm. I'll say that. It's gross. But, but uh, it's I can just sleep like, on my arm. no feeling. <laughs> so I, I empathize a little bit. Mm. This has been a great discussion. My stomach is growling. I was kind of distracted because I'm so excited by having another uh, guest host in a homeroom. So I, I don't know what it is, but I'm hoping it's a little South African food because my mouth is watering for some biltong, maybe some agawinya, some bunny chow. We'll, we'll see if it's there, but I'm, I'm just curious. I'm just curious. All right, let's find out. Simon, the do-what-I-do computer game from MB Electronics. Welcome to Country Culture. Let's talk about what happened after this album came out and what it influenced. So by July 1987, Graceland had sold 6 million copies worldwide. It has been estimated to have sold... That's almost as many dollars as MST3K's uh, (laughs) Kickstarter made. (laughs) So close. But by 2021, it's estimated to have sold between 14 and 16 million copies to date. Wow. Wow. And that's with zero marketing push beforehand. Is that right? Which like, does that mean marketers have no worth? We're not needed. You said it, not me. You said it, not me. (laughs) I'm just saying saying That was the underlying message of Big. They were trying to get across the whole time. Well, real quick, to go platinum, is that 10 million? Is that? I thought it was 1 million is platinum, isn't it? Is it? Oh, it's only 1 million. Okay, wow. So he's like 14 times platinum. Yeah. He's 14 bazillion platinum. He's unobtainium, basically. Unobtainium, exactly. (laughs) And so when this album drops in South Africa, it's the best-selling release since Michael Jackson's Thriller in 1982. Wow. So I want to talk about the awards real fast. So it won the 1987 and 1988 Album and Record of the Year Grammys. New York Times writer John Pirellis identified Graceland as an album that had popularized African rock in the West alongside albums such as Peter Gabriel's So! Which we talked about with Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. We're still doing that Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon thing with our own podcast. We're trying to connect them all. Uh, It's number 71 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. And in 2006, it was added to the United States National Recording Registry as culturally, historically, and aesthetically important. So I want to get into the sort of uh, critical reception Mm. of Graceland. So what what did the critics say about this sweet pressed vinyl slash cassette tape? What did Siskel and Ebert think? Oh, wait, this is the movie. (laughs) Never mind, never mind. So uh, there's there's two of them here I really want to highlight that I think are really great. So Andrew Leahy of American Songwriter says, Graceland was never just a collection of songs after all. It was a bridge between cultures, genres, and continents, not to mention a global launching pad for the musicians whose popularity had been suppressed under South Africa's white run apartheid rule 
Uh, Tris McCall of the Star Ledger writes, In a sense, Simon was ahead of his time. The curatorial approach he took to assembling full tracks from scraps of songs and pre-existing recordings is closer in execution to that of Kanye West than it is to any of his contemporaries. How do you feel about this comparison of Paul Simon? Not to necessarily other like folk rockers and musicians like Bob Dylan, but more like he's much closer like what Kanye West does with remixes and bites and things like that. Totally, yeah, like hip hop artists and sampling. Um, and yeah, no, I, that, I I think that's completely fair. Before the era of being able to instantly record just jam sessions, it was a different approach of how you would like construct a song and then from there construct an album. So yeah, I like would he's totally ahead of his time. Now, um thinking about it like when we get together and jam, we just like press record and lay down a bunch of stuff and then maybe one in ten things that we play, we're like, hey, that's pretty cool. Let's explore that idea next time kind of deal. Yeah. Nobody was doing that at, at the time. It was like you didn't because, well, a studio time was so expensive. And again, it yeah. was physical tape. When you went into a recording studio, you're paying a bunch of people, you're paying for the room and you're paying for the physical materials. So when you walk in, um, like Tom Petty in his documentary, like he shows up and he only had a couple songs prepared. And then they're like, oh, no, you do not come here unless you've got 20 songs ready to go. And they're all structured. And we go boom, 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 boom. And like, that's how it was done. So to have like the complete opposite approach of that, where I don't have a single song structured, I don't even know what the idea is, let alone what yeah. the parts are. And again, it was a break from Simon himself because he had always um, had a very clear vision of what the individual tracks were going to be, what the what the parts were going to be. Uh, so yeah, it was a complete departure from his normal process too. Super cool. There's two more reviews I want to read, and then I'm going to mic drop it and kick it over to you guys. But these are these are huge reviews. So in the documentary under African Skies, David Byrne says that all music in the world is African in one sense or another. And in Graceland, you can hear the reunification of American pop music with its African roots. Wow. Like he sort of brings this back full circle. Wow. Because we, I mean, we've, we, you know, the, the three of us have studied a lot about music. I, we know a lot of our fans are pop culture fans. So, you know, Motown and all these things, 50s pop, 60s pop, rock and roll, this all comes from African music. And it's sort of this idea that it's reunified in Graceland in a way. Hmm. It's a massive moment in music history. Uh, and then the mic drop, uh, the other mic drop I think is great, is All Music's William Ruhlman said, Graceland became the standard against which subsequent musical experiments by major artists were measured. Sure. It is yeah, this, yeah. yeah, this I'd watermark. That's fair, yeah. There's so many reviews about Graceland that are all just poetic of like, it's incredible, it's amazing, it transcends all these things. Uh, any of them you guys want to read, reviews of the album that you know, feedback. What's interesting, uh, the the best review was just, again, watching Simon sitting down at the recording console, reviewing his own track, and he's going through Graceland. He basically goes through the entire song, and he's just lifting faders here. He's He's got, he did overdub backing vocals, all this stuff he goes into, and he's commenting about his lyrics, and he's like, oh, yeah, like, I, I like that line, and oh, yeah, I like the feeling there. Um there's only one, I can't even remember it now, but there's one line. He's like, that's the only lyric I'd rewrite in the entire song. And um, I, oh, wow. I, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily agree with him, but it's just, again, like watching an artist critique his own work and going through it. And if you get a chance, I highly recommend watching Paul yeah. Simon listen back to the original recording. It's so cool. That's a good transition talking about the lyrics. So the reviews of the album are super positive. What is not positive is 
how he produced the album and what he did to get there. And so I want to talk about the backlash he got for producing Graceland. Sure. So following the album's success, he faced accusations by organizations such as Artists United Against Apartheid, anti-apartheid musicians including Billy Bragg, Paul Weller, and Jerry Dammers, and James Victor Bejo, at the time the Ghanaian ambassador to the United Nations, that he had broken the cultural boycott imposed by the rest of the world against apartheid regime in South Africa. Critics condemned him for potentially having damaged solidarity, calling him naive for going there to record this album and and sort of claiming whether one way or the other that he just wasn't aware of the depth of the complications or the challenges of apartheid. It's really interesting, though. So again, I keep pitching under African skies, but like they, they interview everybody, all the artists throughout this whole thing, the South African artists. And they all seem so incredibly appreciative of this opportunity to share their culture and their music via this collaboration with Paul Simon and their stories like with the world, especially Lady Smith, Black Mombazo. Because again, like we talked, a lot of these artists end up touring for years with Paul Simon, these Graceland tours. Right. But it's hard. Like I mentioned this group in the documentary, Dolly Tambo, who's the founder of Artists Against Apartheid. He says, quote, we had been saying to artists all over the world at this point in history of South Africa, the expression of your support must be non-participatory. You cannot go there. And so these are the people on the ground in South Africa trying to fight apartheid. Uh, and they're saying, don't come here, please don't do this. And Simon does. And so he gets a lot of really complicated backlash. So he gets really criticized by a lot of different groups for not addressing apartheid in his lyrics. Graceland, for all intents and purposes, is a really fun album. Like, it sounds fun. Like you said, it's in a major key. You're bopping. It's summer music like Mabakanga is. And they were like, well, why aren't, why aren't you talking about apartheid? Why aren't you fighting against this? And he says, quote, was I supposed to solve things in a song? Paul Simon said, I'm not good at writing overtly political protest songs like Bob Dylan or Bob Geldof. He felt that although Graceland wasn't overtly political, that it was its own political statement. He quotes, I still think it's the most powerful form of politics, more powerful than saying it right on the money, in which case you're usually preaching to the converted already. People get attracted to the music, and once they hear what's going on within it, they say, what? They're doing that to these people. So, Greg, you had mentioned, like, it, you know, Bob Dylan being a protest songwriter, but you loving Simon poetry. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Uh, again, I didn't realize the whole context with apartheid in the creation of this before, you know, researching it. So to hear Simon talk about it and also who he talked to beforehand. And basically everybody said, yeah, don't do it. And I also heard Simon say that he purposely was not going to perform, which was a big part of it. So it was working with musicians in South Africa and bringing that music to the world, as opposed to bringing his music to South Africa, which is a very different thing for him. So like the Sun City Resort, uh, where Sinatra performed in 81 and got a bunch of backlash for that kind of, he did not want to go that route. Well, and for context, Greg, right, that's an all white audience at that particular venue, right? Yes. All white, closed off, like high end resort in South Africa that would bring in international acts. Yeah, he kind of sneaks in the back door because, again, yeah, he's flying under the radar. He's following his musical instincts. And it's hard to fault somebody for feeling the the tug and the passion. It wasn't like he was like, oh, where am I going to record my next album? Ah, yes, South Africa is a great place to do it because all this stuff is going on. No, he's listening to (laughs) this mixtape driving to Montauk. And he's like, I freaking love these jams. Where are these guys from? And then it starts like the whole thing. So I think 
the way in which he went about it was all totally above board. And yeah, in retrospect, should he have been a little more sensitive? <sighs> Maybe it's hard to I again, I would I'm not in South Africa at that time. So it, it would be hard to say. Have you guys seen the documentary Searching for Sugar Man? No, it's been a while. But yeah, Sixto Rodriguez, um, really quickly, super cool. Um, one documentary of the year, what a couple years ago, I can't remember what year it came out. Anywho, artist in the US that was virtually unknown had all the big names behind him. Only sold a few thousand albums, went nowhere in the U.S. Somehow a bootleg copy made it to South Africa. And it was at the time, in like the late 70s, one of the top three albums. It was like people had The Beatles, Elvis, and Rodriguez. And it ended up being instrumental in the kind of anthem of anti-apartheid movement at the time well before Simon had gone there, but kind of the same idea that Sixto Rodriguez had no connection to South Africa or apartheid by any means. He was singing about Detroit and how it was run down and how people were marginalized based on the color of their skin or how much money they had in their pocket. Um, And those themes directly translated and ended up being this huge part of the South African experience at that time. And so to Paul Simon's point, yeah, you don't have to come out and say, I'm against apartheid. And this is my song that says that it's no, let's celebrate the positive and the awesome with this culture that's being completely oppressed. And rather than call it out, you highlight the good, then let people ask the question, yeah, hey, why aren't we hearing more of this kind of stuff? Why aren't we seeing South African culture? Uh, And I I think that's all totally valid. You know, I I tried to see this from both sides and understand the people who were very upset with him, and then of course, his decision. And in my mind, I was like, okay, I feel like when this is happening, people who are going to suffer are the artists of South Africa who are now being more contained because of this cultural boycott. And my only concern about Simon going there was like, okay, was he exploiting these musicians in any way? Was he not paying them? Was he not crediting them? Were they entering into this agreement to work together under some false pretense? Or, you know, was there anything like that which would seem to make it like he's going to take advantage of these artists, come back to America, make a big album, and reap all the rewards? And from what I can tell, that's not the case. And it feels like, to Ben's point, that the artists were really excited for the collaboration and through this album were able to get a world stage to, you know, spread their music and, you know, their joy for singing it and playing it. And so I totally understand the people who are frustrated and mad at him. I also get that this might be in some way damaging the anti-apartheid movement, but also he went there sort of in defiance of the South African government. It wasn't with their permission. It wasn't to collaborate with them in any way. He went for the artists. And so if you look at it from a musician standpoint, there's a, there's a purity of making music like you mentioned, Greg. I do feel like, and maybe this is, you know, looking back with 2020 vision here, or maybe it's 2021 vision, I guess, in our case, but but I feel like I don't necessarily have an issue with it. And maybe that's just because of the long passage of time and looking at it in retrospect. I don't know. To be honest, I'm really torn on how I feel it today. I kind of, I really see both sides. This is a largely subjective statement, depending on where you're living and when at time. But in a large general sweeping sense, governments tend to exist to try and create guidelines and roadmaps to approach something that looks like a peaceful and civil society. 
we're like ants. We like organization as a society. We try and organize. And so there are rules that we are supposed to follow to approach that peace and harmony. And so the UK and the United States said, artists cannot work with South Africa. That is the rule. And the United Nations blacklisted Simon for what he did. And as someone like myself who loves to follow rules, that like makes my skin crawl. (laughs) But what makes me even more uncomfortable is all of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movements in South Africa said, don't come. You can't come here. You don't understand, not being from this country, how we're fighting this and the intricacies of it and how complicated it is. You can't come here. And in the Under the African Skies, they're like, Simon didn't ask any of us what we thought if he could come and do this. He just came and did what he did. And that made things real hard on us and real complicated. Now, on the other side, though, (laughs) for all intents and purposes, what he produced was something beautiful and incredible and important. Uh, And I agree with Chris. You know, I, I gave it the litmus test of like, is this fair? Does this smell right? Is he treating the artist fairly? And that is yes. And even from the mouth of the artist in South Africa, it promoted this culture and this art style to the world. So many people have never heard of it before. It brought attention to apartheid, which legally on paper ended just eight years later. And so Simon ends his own documentary saying the political problems have ended that on paper in South Africa, but the music still brings us all together. And uh, he apologizes to one of the heads of the resistance in the documentary for the misunderstanding through what they were trying to accomplish. And they both kind of say, like, we were all victims of the political storm of apartheid in South Africa one way or the other. You know, Greg, you're a constant listener. Chris, you know, I made this passionate point. The people are not their government. Governments do a thing, and it doesn't mean that's what the people of that country feel or believe or how they act. And I think this is a, a crystal clear example of that in practice. Of course, there's some other micro controversies that are going on. Basically, all the other Western artists that Paul Simon collaborate with all threaten to file a legal suit on their different tracks because Simon's not giving them enough credit or enough royalties for the parts they contribute with. Gumboots in particular, like that track, those artists were like, yep, yeah, he, we went into the studio, it was our tune, and Simon basically straight up just took it and called it his own, um, which I can definitely see. The flip side of that is, would that tune have otherwise seen the light of day in an international setting? That's not to excuse or say that it's okay to to rip off somebody's work, claim it as your own, and pass it off. Led Zeppelin was charged with doing that on multiple fronts Mm. and other artists all along the way. And one of my favorite sayings is amateurs borrow masters steal (laughs) (laughs) who's the best example of that of course would be john williams um Mm. not the classical guitarist but the film score composer Mm. that could be an entire podcast on its own as well uh but once you're in a collaborative setting and especially if it's a room full of musicians to pull apart the individual this is mine this is mine um is very difficult and can get just like Lennon and McCartney, right? Um, and then, of course, Yoko Ono claiming that post-mortem Lennon tunes were not written by McCartney at all and that kind of stuff. It, it like that That's the side of the music industry and, and with recordings specifically, because we hold on to recordings more than we hold on to the musicians, I feel like, a lot of the times. Ooh, mm. Interesting. When it gets down to that level, what's the point? <laughs> like, it, you know, who cares... 
on some level uh, about who sang this first or who wrote this later, the end product kind of tying into the theme of like, yeah, the maybe the way Simon went about it wasn't totally kosher, uh, and it absolutely wasn't. However, the end product was a, a beautiful album uh, that exposed the world to this type of music. So I don't know. Maybe All's Well That Ends Well is a, is a little <laughs> a, a, a little too forgiving. Linda Ronstadt is the featured singer on Under African Skies, and she was really criticized because three years earlier, she accepted half a million dollars to perform at Sun City, the all-white South mm. African luxury resort. Yes. Which Nelson George of Billboard said her inclusion on the album was like using gasoline to put out birthday candles. <laughs> so, you know, not a real like smooth move, maybe. Like, yeah. You know, to your, to your hope of all's well that ends well. So after apartheid ends on paper – Nelson Mandela invites Simon to come back to Johannesburg and play five shows of Graceland. And this is also supported by the African National Congress, which are the ones who had blacklisted him from coming back to the country. So they're like, all right, let's let's patch <laughs> this over. All right. Before his first concert, hand grenades are thrown into the office of the promoter Addie Van Wick, who had booked Simon for the shows. Office is leveled. No one's hurt, though. And um, this militant group, the Azanian People's Organization, claims responsibility. And basically before all five shows, there's bomb threats and they have to bring in police and look for weapons. And it's very tense, but they do it. They pull it off to sort of this, this reparation, sort of like, let's patch this over. That's a great point, Ben. I think part of my, you know, was what he did okay, I think is that amends were made with a lot of the the people who I think were rightly frustrated with him when he went and did what he did. But I feel like now that the fact that he's no longer blacklisted that, you know, in, in pretty short order, like a lot of that happened within a couple of years after the album came out. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so again, I feel like that kind of contributes to the the long lens of history to be able to look back and say, you know, in the end, what he did, I think, worked out well for, for all the parties involved. It took us a little while to get there, but we're back to where the inspiration, what contemporary culture is all about, the influences that Graceland had on things going forward. I would like to first hand the mic to either of you guys. What what jumped out? What did you find in your research? Really, what did – I mean, we saw the quote that Graceland set the bar for experimental albums for artists going forward. But what else? What did Graceland influence? I have but one thing, and then I'll pass it off to Greg. So Ben, you love You Can Call Me Out. Do you know who else loved it so much that they used it as their campaign song? As their campaign song? Al Gore? Al Gore? Al Gore. No way! Used You Can Call Me Out when he was running for vice president in 1992. That's amazing. That's awesome. I saw that and I was like, oh, that's going into the old notes. (laughs) That was good. I can say of this album and... Um, the process, what I think we say of a lot of things, I can't draw a straight line to another artist or album or thing, but I have no doubts that anyone who thought, I want to experiment with music, I want to try something new, I want to work with artists from different parts of the world and different styles and influences, you have to imagine that kind of lit some inspiration for other artists. I just can't draw a straight line in my mind. The only straight line I can compare would be to myself. Just while Paul Simon in general, but this album specifically. But yeah, uh, more just like world music and highlighting that it's a in pop to infuse other world sounds. Because I'm trying to think of like, yeah, there was the right um, Peter Gabriel uh, beforehand. A lot of other artists had pulled in things from 
African sounds, it kind of opened up the doors, I think, like anything goes, like a free range. You can use sounds and instruments from all over the place. It's like, oh, yeah, the didgeridoo, that sounds cool. Let's throw it on this track because it's random or whatever. And now it's not, it wouldn't even, I mean, obviously in, in today's era, no one would bat an eye to be like, oh, yeah, that's like a tribal drum um, from Polynesia or something like that. It would just be sound. Mm. It's hard for me to put a, a direct link on something else, but I think it did absolutely just from a commercial success standpoint, because again, that was not the intention going into it. But now floodgates being open for other commercial artists to experiment without the fear of flop or failure. So a bunch of artists have come out and said, like, this album really influenced and inspired them. So that includes Regina Spector, Bombay Bicycle Club, Gabby Young, Casio Kids, The Very Best, Givers, Lord. Lord. Of people. Oh. But there's one here that's huge that I love, and I'm so happy. Like, there's so much that's lining up that's so great. Are you talking about Chevy Chase's unknown musical career? <laughs> Obviously. Because of that, you can call me out. <laughs> he learned to play all those instruments in that music video. That's right. Um, no, it's Vampire Weekend. Oh, oh. yes. So when Vampire Empire Weekend's debut album came out in 2008. It got a lot of criticism because a lot of people said, this is Graceland. You made another Graceland. And Greg, why I'm so happy you're here. And that the timing of this podcast is going to come out on your anniversary. Because my single greatest Vampire Weekend memory is we were all getting ready for your wedding. And we're in our dress clothes. And we were running late to the venue. And we are in this car. You packed all the groomsmen into one tiny car. (laughs) And we are hauling through Washington windy rural roads. Like, we are speeding. And we were blasting Vampire Weekend on the way to your wedding. (laughs) And so I love that this is coming out on your anniversary. But Simon defends this. He comes out and Simon says, quote, In a way, we were all on the same pursuit. But I don't think you're lifting for me. In any way, you're welcome to it because everybody's lifting all the time. That's the way music grows and is shaped. Amen. But you're a Vampire right. Weekend fan. Do you do you see it? Do you hear oh, it? Oh, 100%. I'm surprised I actually haven't drawn that link at some point earlier. It truly is like more world music, I think, than just Africa. But I like that quote that you said, like, Simon, we're lifting from each other all the time. You know, that little mini uh, document series, uh, Everything's a Remix, and enter modern copyright laws and how stifling that is for art across the board, but specifically Mm. music. Every major classical artist you can think of, Tchaikovsky, Bach, Brahms, Mozart, all of those lifted heavily from contemporary folk tunes. Tchaikovsky is the best known for it. At the time, it was just, hey, this is a cool jam. I'm going to put my twist on it. And not only was that okay, it was celebrated. Enter the modern era and monetization, again, going back to recordings versus live performance. How stifling it is now that, oh, I have to be careful not to even appear that I'm lifting from somewhere else. And that just narrows the breadth of possibilities. And so it's really encouraging to hear Paul Simon, who is not like, I have obviously never met him. I have no idea what he's like. I've you heard guys him. go way back. Oh, wait, you way just back. call him oh, Paul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You guys are on first uh, just name like, uh, No, he Bob, calls him Al. Yeah, Bob Dylan. Ah! 
<laughs> but I've heard he's like not the nicest guy in person. It, like a uh, story of his, um, I, uh, apparently one year for El- uh, Elton John's birthday, he gifted him a dictionary because Elton John famously does not write his own lyrics. Oh, uh, oh, oh <laughs> wow. Burn. So, wow. Burn. He's a passive aggressive. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But cool <laughs> to hear him say, no, like, go for it. Although, eh, I guess it could be argued Paul Simon did essentially, like, lift just straight up jams from South African. So it's not really his to give away anyway. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that's interesting. We have played side A of the record. We've played side B. We flipped it over and we did it again. I think we have gone <laughs> through every aspect of this this record, which means there's only one thing less to do. Flip it to side C? <laughs> the no. C side. <laughs> you put on the edge and you just roll the vinyl down the street. Right. Uh, we got to go to math class and see how this album holds up in 2021. I didn't study. Okay. Hopefully I'll pass. <laughs> You've got this. You've got this. <laughs> Yeah, actually, Greg, can you do a live? Uh, That's right, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't even know what I, what I was playing. Where, where's, my, where's my damn pick? Hold on. I think it was a kazoo. You were playing a kazoo when you did it. <laughs> yeah! All right, there it is. That's freaking sweet. Uh, so it's time to put the notes on the scales and see how it all balances out. Uh, We've talked a lot about our modern interpretation of how Simon approached the making of this album. So I think we've, I think we know where we stand on that. So let's focus on the music. How do the music and lyrics hold up in 2021? So Chris, let's kick it off with you. How, How do you feel like the music and the lyrics hold up today? As I mentioned before, I like an album that explores, expands, surprises, and has fun. And I feel like this album does all of those things. I like the lyrics. For the most part, I mean, some of the lyrics, I'm like, okay, this is fine. But like, he's got those moments where he just kind of comes out and hits you in the face and you're like, whoa, that was great. I loved the sound of the album and the different tracks. Like a lot of those intros were just really fun. Graceland starts off with that kind of jaunty tune. You get the guitar licks and the percussion, like all of that stuff I really like. Now, having said that, is this an album where I'm like, this is on my rotation now. I got to listen to this. I am now a Paul Simon convert. Um, I don't think so. Like, I really enjoyed it. I can't say it's going to go into a heavy rotation, but it was fun to learn about it, fun to listen to. I give it my thumbs up. Yeah, I, th- I think I think I agree with you in that, as Greg has taught us tonight, it's written in a major chord, which is a happy, happy scale. Am I using the right music terms? Scale? Chord? Sure, that's, I mean, not to say that the entire thing is major the entire time, but it overwhelmingly right. resides in the major keys, I'll say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the it's a major violin. award. It's yeah. a major- <laughs> <laughs> so like it is. It's like a happy job. There are so many tunes. If if you if you can call me outcomes on, I'm gonna sing along wherever I am, and I hear it. I love that. And like we talked earlier, like there is so much beauty in it. I you know usually it kind of drives me nuts when when records like jump back and forth between like a high energy like rock and like happy song, and then there's like mm. a really soft like. It's like a high school dance. You got to like feel the room and just like go with the undulations. You can't staccato every other one, but it works on Graceland for me. I like it. I love all the different approaches with the music. And of course, we've already talked about it, but I think it's so important what it accomplished, the variety of music in it, where the origins come from, using the different instruments, the different approach to songwriting and just the different development of music in South Africa is so cool. I think it's an awesome listen. And kind of like with anything in pop culture, 
once you learn the background of it, I value it so much more now that I know the story behind right. it. It's so cool. It's amazing. Greg, you're sort of our Gandalf on this episode like we had on <laughs> Sportball with Miracle. You're here. You are a practicing musician. You've been in so many bands. You've got recordings. You've got your own records. How do you feel this album holds up today? Overwhelmingly holds up um, is going to be what I'll lead with. For me personally, yeah, it has come and gone through my life at pretty much every phase. And what I really appreciated about you guys having me talk about it with you is the research and understanding the context behind it gives it a, a further level of appreciation for me, which is really cool. Some of my favorite lyrics of all time contained within these pages of songs. What's interesting is the the boy in the bubble and the baby with the I had always thought he was saying battling like bat like the oh. like a battling heart. I mean that's just straight alliteration. Boy and bubble, baby, baboon are like very yeah. very cool rhythmic lyricism. Mm. Some other songs the. Uh, I was having a discussion in a taxi headed downtown. You don't feel you could love me, but I feel you could. That tune. Um, mm, there is yeah. one line in there that always sticks with me. Uh, and he says, oh, you know, breakdowns come and breakdowns go. What are you going to do about it? That's what I want to know. Mm. Uh. It's so true. I mean, that's life. Good, bad, positive, negative, whatever. What are you going to do about it? That's what I want to know. That's what tells yeah. me who you are as a person. It's really outlook on life. I've always considered myself an optimist because I've been very fortunate in life. So it's easy for me to claim that. But when this hard stuff happens, yeah, I, I always think to that line. It's really stuck with me. Every track has its own little nuances lyrically, but the, the words themselves do not grow old. Even like Boy in the Bubble, which is specifically about, you know, stuff pertinent to that place and time, but overall timeless. So musically, I would not consider myself like a f necessarily a fan of like Ladysmith, Black Mombazo, um, or or like African beats or jams. Even though I've known, like I've grown up with this my entire life, something about this album, I feel like it's a part of me. And maybe it's just because I've listened to that for so long. Maybe mm. going back to what you had said earlier, Ben, about. Yeah, David Byrne saying it's like the return, uh, the full circle, like return to Africa. And if you think about it. Music is nothing more than structured sound, and what keeps structure is rhythm. We feel and hear rhythm before we're born, quite literally, in our mother's heartbeat. Like, that is the essence of music, and it, yeah. like, the feeling of humanity is tribal in its origin, and how it, it, it absolutely, like, courses through your veins. Um, and I think Simon captured that through the amazing musicians that he worked with. The only thing that I don't think holds, there's, I, I will make two criticisms. One being what is not timeless is the effect on the snare itself. Mm. That bam, bam, the born in the USA, Bruce Springsteen, like that, like overdone snare sound <clears throat> is so 80s yeah. that I feel it does put it in a time capsule. Oh, interesting. That would be my, my one sonic criticism. The other would be, I feel like the album does lose steam as it goes on. It starts off mm. as most albums do. 
If you think about live throwing copper, the first seven tracks of that album are absolutely amazing. And then it just kind of peters off. Third Eye Blinds Mm. for a self-titled album, same thing. Uh, There's a bunch of albums that do that. And of course, the studios construct the albums because you know back in the day when you're at sam goody or whatever you're listening to tracks in order and so you want your heavy hitters up front right so yeah that's kind of my take on it thanks for coming on this ride with us to get into graceland and paul simon oh my god thank you for having me it's yeah, been awesome so excited to have you here did we pass music appreciation absolutely as with flying colors Yay! we're not being held back a year <laughs> yeah if people want to hear more of your music, tell us where where can they find you? What do you got going on right now in music? I don't have a heck of a lot to plug and pitch um, other than you. So gregreadmusic.com is the website. And I've got a whole smattering of stuff of bands I've worked with in the past uh, and some solo stuff on there, all available for free and download and, you know, go to town uh, on that kind of thing. Um, currently, uh, we've been uh, jamming um, as a group of a few fellows here in Bellingham. I think we're going to be called Vendovi, which is an island out, out, in the, out in the San Juans here close to us. Oh. And we're actually meeting up with a drummer week after next once my little ring finger heals uh and we've got a couple places actually um lined up to play i think our first gig is going to be a rooftop gig cool yeah we've got our our set list down and some recordings and that kind of stuff we're we're not quite ready to release it out into the wild but we're very close that's awesome so gregreekmusic.com watch for vendovi coming to you soon and 80s pop culture podcast there you go it's so good christopher i know what i know but I don't know what your surprise topic is going to be for the next week. Oh, my gosh. I knew. I was like, okay, we finally got out of this. I'm pulling us right back in. Sometimes you get stuck, almost like you have gum on your boots. Like gum I, was, boots. Oh, I was just going to say, we, I need to pull myself up by my gum bootstraps. But <laughs> yeah. darn it, you beat me to the gum bootstraps. All I'm left with is Crazy Love Volume 2. Like, I can't work that's with That's hard to work with. That's hard or that was your mother. Like, I just can't work those in. Okay, so next episode. Gentlemen, we're sitting here right now. It is mid-May with the promise of summer soon approaching. I feel like each of us has favorite summer activities. I believe we've kind of heard Greg's today, road tripping with Graceland, right? For sure. And feelings that we associate with the season of summer. And Mm. also all those great, wonderful memories we have of past summers. Mm. And so on the next episode of 80s High... I'd like to revisit those childhood, carefree days of summer vacations. Oh, okay. The trips we took, the places we visited, the people we went with, the souvenirs we shoved into our bags, and the (laughs) cherished memories, good and bad, that are forever in our hearts and minds. Here's what I'm scared about. I think the podcast is about to implode because this might be the most nostalgic topic we've picked. Like everyone has so many personal memories about their family summer vacations. Absolutely. I love it. I haven't really talked about my time at Folsom Prison much as a child, but this is (laughs) going to be great. (laughs) We're going to get the full lowdown in all of the dirty details of Ben's sordid past (laughs) and maybe some other fun things on the next episode (laughs) of 80s High. (laughs) (laughs) thanks everyone for listening to 80s high podcast by ben and chris our theme song is by greg reed at gregreedmusic.com 
with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical. Stay radical.